Cool, well, it's good to have you here tonight. I don't know if you've worked out, has anyone worked out what is happening two weeks today? Anyone worked out? Christmas Day, two weeks today. So I want to know, who's, who's done all their Christmas shopping? Hands up. Who's already? Okay. I also enjoyed the judgmental looks you got at that point as well. Who has still got loads of Christmas shopping left to do? Okay, we've got a pretty disorganized church. Looking good. Now, I know for some people, the mention of Christmas can fill you with absolute delight, and you're like this kind of excited little kid. And for others, the mention of Christmas fills you with dread, and you're just not excited for these next couple of weeks, and you can't wait for it just all to be over. So just to kind of get a feel for where I've got a pitch tonight, to see who we got in the room, can I just see a show of hands? Who here loves Christmas? Who here? Okay, okay. Okay. And who here, hands up if you hate Christmas? <laughs> you got a couple kind of like, all right, fair enough. Well, okay, what about who, who is kind of in the middle? Who's kind of like, yeah, sort of love it, sort of not? Yeah, okay, that's quite a few. I'd say I'm in that, that category, I'm in that camp. I kind of love Christmas and I kind of hate it at the same time. One thing I hate about Christmas, all right, here's one thing I hate, is unwrapping presents. Unwrapping, yeah, exactly, what? Yeah, yeah, you're saying the best bit. Yeah, it's the best bit, unless you're from a family where your parents are keepers. Who knows what I'm talking about? (laughs) Parents where every little bit of wrapping paper is going to be reused next year. That's that's my mum. So you get your present. You know, most kids, the present comes from under the tree and you're tearing it off and it's flying everywhere. No, no, no. Not in the brown house. No, no. In my house, you get your present and then it's like the brain surgery begins. You kind of, you have to take it slowly. You get the sellotape off the middle and you're peeling it back and the sweat's beading down your forehead and then you rip it and your mum gives you this kind of like... Uh, and then trying to salvage it. And you haven't got to the present, and you're feeling guilty, and you're feeling stressed. And I've still got some deep wounds there, guys. So if you could pray for me, that would be great. So, you know, unwrapping presents, no, hate it. But there is one thing I really love about Christmas. One thing I love that just comes together at Christmas. And you might think I'm going to say family or people at church. No. The thing that I love that comes together at Christmas is pigs in blankets. Sausage wrapped in bacon. That is a match made in heaven. Yes, I know, I know it clogs your arteries, but it fills your heart with wonder. And I just, I love it. I love pigs in blankets, my favorite part of the Christmas meal. So, you know, I kind of hate Christmas, I kind of love it. But the thing is, what if I asked you the question, instead of do you love or hate Christmas, what if I asked you, do you love or hate the Christmas story? Do you love or hate the Christmas story? Because when you get what's going on with the Christmas story, there's not really much room for a middle ground, a kind of, "Mm, well. And I think, and it's a really interesting quote here from from Tim Keller, which, I, which kind of surprised me at first. He said this, and he, he wrote a book called Hidden Christmas, which if you're looking for a good Christmas book, I can really recommend. He says this, Christmas is both more wondrous and more threatening than we imagine. And you might say, really? It doesn't really seem all that controversial or threatening. And I think part of the reason for that is we've kind of watered down Christmas, haven't we? We've sort of sanitized it and become really familiar with it. 
What do you think of when you think of the Christmas story, the nativity? Primary school nativity plays. Little kids with tea towels on their head, some little present wrapped up with gold wrapping paper, so ghetto wise man gift, all sorts of cotton wool for sheep. And it's kind of this kind of slightly awkward, slightly sweet service where the, king sing, the kids sing away in a manger and little donkey. And it's kind of this sort of, I don't know, slightly awkward, slightly sweet sort of thing. But we've lost sight of the fact that Christmas isn't just a sweet story. It's something that happened to real people in a real place, in a real time, in a kind of, you know, people just like you and me. And we're in danger of relegating the Christmas story to just primary schools and storybooks. And so I just want us to look tonight a little bit at the question of, okay, what is Christmas all about? And we're going to look at some of the key facts of the event, some of the things that we can learn about God, some of the ways that people reacted, and also see what our response is in light of that. Sound good? All right, so if you've got your Bible, you turn to Luke chapter 2. We're going to start off with the story of the shepherds, and it will also appear up on the screen. So we're looking at Luke chapter 2, verses, verses 8 to 20. Luke chapter 2, 8 to 20. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Okay, so what's going on here? Maybe you've heard this story a few times, but it's a little bit strange, a little bit weird. You've got a group of guys, a group of shepherds doing a night shift on a hillside, and then some angelic a cappella group turns up to give them a message. And so what's it all about? Let's, let's look at what was the point of that whole story. Well, in verse 11, we see what the primary point of the whole thing was, what the main message was. We learn the good news of great joy is a saviour has been born to us. A saviour has been born to us. And so the first thing we learn about the Christmas story is that Jesus came to save us. So why is having a saviour uh, savior such great news? Why is that such a big deal? Because all of us know that something has gone seriously wrong in the world. You don't have to look too far in your own life or in the lives of your friends or family or people in your neighbourhood 
or read the paper for too long or work out from the news what's happening around the world, that something has gone seriously wrong. Of course we know that because everything you read about in the papers or see on the news or chat about with people, it's all about trying to work out how do we solve this problem? How do we solve it? So we try and come up with solutions. Like we say, well, you know, this is how we can solve it. We just need to elect the right politicians. Or we just need to spread democracy around the world and then everything will be fine. Or we need to improve education. Or, you know, if we just were better people, we'd sort out all the problems of the world. But the problem is this, we haven't stopped evil. And in fact, often, when we've tried to solve the problem, we've made it worse. And that's because our problem, the big problem, isn't financial or intellectual or political. It's moral. We're incapable of solving our own sin and sorting out our own evil. And whether we like to admit it or not, we need saving from ourselves. And the central message of Christmas, the incredible message of Christmas, is that rather than just stand back and and say, I'm done with you, rather than stand back, God said, I'm not going to wash my hands of you. I'm going to step down and get my hands dirty. That's the message of Christmas. Knowing exactly what we need, God didn't just send a politician or send a scientist or some amazing soldier. He sent himself as saviour. And that's the amazing message of Christmas. So let's, let's just be clear on this. You, you know, you might have heard this a load of times. You hear it in church or in nativity plays. But this is very, very crazy, unparalleled in any world religion. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard anyone say, okay, well, all religions lead to God. They're, they're all kind of the same, aren't they? You know, all truths lead to God. This is unlike any other world religion, this claim. In fact, this claim would be offensive to many other world religions. That the God of the universe would become a man, would be far too belittling. The creator becoming the created. It would be crazy. So I thought, just imagine the, the, the one who formed the mountains becoming a baby. Or the hands that flung stars into space in the hands of a toddler who can't even feed himself without help. That would be unthinkable. But that's what God did. He did the unimaginable thing. And he stepped down onto earth and said, you know, I'm not just going to leave you. I'm going to give everything so that you can know me. I'm going to come and save you from your sin. I'm not just going to leave you alone. I'm here to save. That's the amazing message of Christmas. God came to us. And when we realize that, we, we realize that we don't have to twist God's arm or say, you know, I just got to be a good person and maybe I'll get into heaven. God saying, I've done everything to be with you. Now just come and be with me. So to help us kind of illustrate this, well, first of all, I just want to say, what, when, you, when you realize what God has done for you, what's your response to him? What's your reaction in light of God doing everything for you? To help us kind of grasp this a little bit, I just want to um, show you a little video that I've made. And uh, to give you a backstory of it, um, I went a few, oh, there we go, a bit of mood lighting. Um, I went, <laughs> went a few weeks ago to um, visit my brother. It was a surprise trip out to see him. 
And he had no idea I was coming. Him and his wife were going to Seattle for Thanksgiving uh, in the States. And so I flew over there, and his um, father-in-law was in on it. So what you're about to see, the backstory is, um, he's just told my brother and his wife that he's got a gift he wants to give them in the boot of his car for Thanksgiving. So here's what happened. So, yeah... Oops, sorry. Wrong button. All right, I'll let you guys open the trunk. Okay. All right. Oh, oh, my God. What? What the heck? What? Are you kidding me right now? This is ridiculous. What the heck? Oh, my gosh. How's it going? John. There we go. So we had quite a lot of fun doing that, as you can see. And I just want to ask you a question. Why did my brother respond like that? Why did he react like that? Because he knew all that had been done for him. Why didn't he just kind of stand there and say, oh, that's nice. Or just kind of blankly stare at me lying in the boot. Because <laughs> he knew all that had been done for him. Now what I did is just a small gesture compared to all that Jesus has done for us. Jesus, what he did for us was far more costly far more expensive. He, the distance he traveled was far greater than anything we could do. It's almost like he said, okay, I've, I've traveled a million miles to be with you. I'll just take a step towards me. And so that's why when, the reason I say that, the reason I talk about reaction is, for many of us, we think when we come to God, we have to kind of work really hard to get him to love us or kind of, you know, just strive to be a better person. And what Christmas says for us is that Jesus has already done it all. And so what we are to do in response is not say, okay, I've just got to, I've got to pray more, read my Bible more, or, or, or try really hard to be a good Christian. Our reaction is to look at what he's already done. And then our response just comes naturally. And we just want to love him back and worship him back. and say, we just want to do whatever we can in return. That's what we do in response to we see a God who's come to us and to save us. Secondly, sometimes when you read the Bible, the message that God is trying to give us is a little bit subtle. I don't know if you've ever had this. You're reading the Bible and you're trying to work out, okay, what's going on here? What's Jesus trying to say? But when it comes to the Christmas story, it's not really like that. It's pretty clear what God's trying to say. And there's one aspect in particular which I think, for, for me, really, really stands out, and it's this. Jesus is here for all. And this is a really powerful statement. How do we know that? Because every leader and politician you have ever seen is desperate to get you to believe that they're one of the people. Every leader is trying to get you to believe and to know that they're one of you. Why? 
Because it's powerful. Why? Because we all want a leader, don't we, who understands us, who gets me, who knows, who knows what my, my life is like. And so what do, the, what do politicians, what do the leaders do? They go on a little trip, maybe out to a, a factory or a farm or a mine or, I don't know, a council estate. And they'll, they'll kind of shake hands with, you know, someone who's just come off the, the factory line or with someone in the council estate who looks sufficiently poor. And, you know, they'll, they'll get the shop with them and get the, the papers there and, you know, get their Twitter out and do a live feed and upload it. And look how awesome I am. I understand these guys. And then what do they do? get back in their car, drive back to the posh part of town, and go back into their fancy house. And with Jesus, he didn't just play some game. He didn't just pretend that he understood us. He didn't just say, I get what's going on. He showed us. He came to the world. And he wasn't born in a palace or a penthouse, but he was born in poverty. And when you read the story of the birth of of Jesus, you really can tell that God is really trying to make this point. See, not only did Jesus, God come as a man in Jesus, but he came as a baby. I mean, that, that in itself is enough to kind of make this point. But not only was he born as a baby, he was conceived in the womb of a woman, a young girl who wasn't even married. Now, that's not easy in today's culture, but back then, in a shame based culture, That would have been a huge shame on her, to be pregnant out of wedlock. As Jesus said, you know, it doesn't matter what you've kind of done or the shame you feel, he is here for you. Now, that would have been enough to make the point, God. But not only was he born, was he conceived in the womb of an unmarried woman, but then he was born in Bethlehem. Now, if God's coming to earth, he's coming to England, let's be honest, he's probably going to come to London. He's not going to come to some backwards town, but God came to Bethlehem. And you're like, okay, God, I get this. You're the humble king who comes down. You're here for all. But I was born in Bethlehem. He was born in a B&B. And you're like, okay, God, cool, B&B. I get that. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, I'm sure you are born in some nice room in there. No, no, no. Not only was he born in the B&B, he was born in the shed out the back, the cattle shed. And you're like, God, this is the clearest message you've ever given in the whole of the Bible. Jesus, God wants it to be clear. Jesus is here for all. And not only all those things, but he appears. Who did he appear first to? Who gets the, the, the message that Jesus had been born first? The shepherds. Now, I don't know if you know anything about shepherds, but shepherds in this time were the social and religious outcasts of the day. They're uneducated. They're poor. These guys weren't even allowed in the temple because they were seen as unclean. Because of what they did, they were kind of considered on the, the same level as prostitutes. So they couldn't even go into the temple. Imagine that. Imagine... You've got a shepherd coming in tonight, and someone's at the door of, of church. He's like, hey, guys, you know you're not allowed in here, right? Those were the people that Jesus appeared to first, that God said, Jesus come to earth, and he wanted the shepherds to know. And so what that's saying to you is, it doesn't matter, you know, how much of a, an outsider you feel, or regardless of how uneducated you are, or poor you are, or inexperience of church, or the religious stuff, or any of that, Jesus is here for you. That's the message of Christmas. I don't know if God's ever been clearer. And what's our response? Well, it's to do the same as Jesus. To do what he did and go out to the poor, 
to go out to the broken, to go to every corner of society, just as he did. And J.R. Packer really explains this really well. He says this, For the Son of God to empty himself and become poor meant a laying aside of glory, a voluntary restraint of power, an acceptance of hardship, malice, and misunderstanding. Here we go. This is what he says. It is our shame and disgrace today that so many Christians avert their eyes to the needs of this world and pass by on the other side. This is not the Christmas spirit. Nor is it the spirit of those Christians, alas, there are many, whose ambition in life seems limited to building a nice middle-class Christian home and making nice middle-class Christian friends and bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways and who leave the marginalized of the community to get on by themselves. The Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christian snob. For the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, trouble, care and concern to do good to others. And not just their friends, in whatever way there seems need. Well, it's a bit of a hard-hitting quote. But he's so right. It makes complete sense that when we understand what Jesus did for us, all that he gave up for us, it's the natural response. No longer is it about just trying to get the best seat at the table or the nicest house in your street or the most respected job or most impressive salary. Instead, it's about taking our eyes off us and putting them on others. That's why we do things like sign up to food bank and help with the night shelter. Or why at work we talk to the person who no one likes. Or at school we hang out with the person who's considered too uncool. It's why we help the refugee who's lost everything. That's the response to someone who knows that Jesus has come for all. So seeing that the Christmas story shows us that Jesus has come to us to save us and he's come for all. And thirdly, we see that Jesus is king. And we see this shown in the account of the wise men and King Herod. And so we're going to read this. This is in Matthew chapter 2. So again, if you've got your Bibles, that's just a bit before Luke. Again, it will be up on the screen. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 6 and 16. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So then 
as for those who've seen enough nativities, the wise men go to Jesus, and then they're warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. And then in verse 16, we read this. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So Herod, Herod was the king of Judah. Judah, the people of God. So you think that as the king of the people of God, being told that the Messiah, the one from God, sent to save his people, King Herod would be like, this is amazing. The king, the, the, the king of the universe coming to save our people. This is incredible. What great news. But instead, what did he do? He thought of himself. He thought of his own power and the control that he might lose if this person was how, you know, he kind of feared. And so what does he do? He tries to kill Jesus off. And it's easy for us to read that and say, wow, Herod was such a terrible person. He was awful. I am not like that at all. But if we're honest with ourselves, when we look in the mirror, all of us have a bit of a little King Herod inside us. See, Herod was worried about his control. And each one of us here is deeply concerned about being in control. You might not admit it, but you are a massive control freak. I am. Each one of us is a massive control freak. All of us wants to be the master of our own destiny. And you know what? It's praised in our culture. It's really praised and publicized and pushed, you know. Be who you want to be. Express yourself however you want. And don't let anyone tell you how to be you. That's what our culture says, isn't it? That's what it says. But Jesus comes along and puts a bit of a spanner in the work. He says, I am the king. And if we admit that, the problem is this. It means submitting everything to him. It means dying to yourself. It's what we've seen with the baptisms tonight. The symbol of baptism being raised down into that pool is a symbol of being lowered down into the grave. It's the exact same symbolism. And so when you say you're making king of your, Jesus king of your life, you're saying, I'm dying to my old self, and saying, Jesus, I give it all to you. My finances, my relationships, my hopes and dreams, everything I hold dear, God, I say, I give it to you. And that's a pretty huge thing. It's not something you just take lightly. It's actually why Jesus says we all have to count the cost before we follow him. Jesus didn't try to kind of do easy sales with people to get more followers. He said, actually, you know what? Following me is probably going to be pretty tough. So don't make this decision quickly or lightly. He's like, you've got to work out if you can, you know, if you can bear the cost of being my disciple. Because it's a big deal. And I was chatting with a friend of mine who I've known for years, and he'd grown up in church. He'd been in church for 20 plus years. And I was trying to work out with him why had he given up on God, given up on church. And I asked him, and his response was, uh, was very honest and very candid. This is what he said. I like having sex with who I want. That was his response. I like having sex with who I want. 
And I, I, was, I was so... He basically was saying, look, here's the bottom line. I love just meeting up with all these different girls. I'm meeting on Tinder, and the sacrifice of that is just too much for me to keep following God. I was so frustrated. I was so... I was just like, oh, you've given up every... You've given up Jesus for this, for sexual gratification. But then after I kind of left and had some time to just reflect on it, I realized that I had done one thing correct. He counted the cost. See, he realized that Jesus is an all or nothing kind of deal. He realized that you can't just say, you know, I'm going to have these bits of following Jesus and, you know, but not this. He counted the cost. It's an all or nothing kind of thing. And to be honest, there's many of us who come to church every so often or even every week and have never done that. I've never made King, Jesus King, over every area of their life. It's a bit like this. I'll just do a bit of an illustration. Tony, can you join me on the stage? Let's have a round of applause for Tony. Yeah. Just take a seat, take a stand over here. So Tony, I want you to imagine Tony is Jesus. It's not hard. He's a very Christ-like guy. Um, most Jesus-like person I know anyway. And I want you to imagine this very expensive purple chair as a throne. So you've got Jesus and the throne. And Jesus says, and this, this is just an illustration of what many of us like. Many of us will say, you know what? I'll give you God. I'll give you Sundays. Jesus, you can be king of Sundays. Sit on the throne. But after Sundays... Now, kind of the rest of the week, Jesus, kind of that's, that's sort of my time of the week. Or we might say, well, Jesus, um, you, can, you can have control over 10% of my finances. You sit on the throne, Jesus. 10% is all yours. I give that to you, King Jesus. But, oh, you want kind of more than that? More than that certain percentage I planned for? Okay, well, kind of that's, that's kind of, that's sort of, uh, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep that. Or might say, well, well Jesus, I'll, I'll let you have, um, Jesus, I will forgive anyone you want, anyone you want. But I won't, I, I won't forgive that one person. You know what they did? I, can't, I can never forgive that one person. <laughs> or we might say, Jesus, I will give you control over every decision I make. Every decision, Jesus, I, I make you king of every decision. But who I go out with, who I have sex with, okay, kind of that's, that's sort of my decision, Jesus. <laughs> and maybe it's a kind of silly analogy. Thanks, Tony. Did a great job of being Jesus. <laughs> that might be a kind of fun, silly analogy, but it's what a lot of us do in our lives. We say, Jesus, you can be king of everything, but not that. Jesus says, there's only one throne. Either you sit on it, or I do. Jesus won't play musical chairs. He either sits on the throne, or he doesn't. Who sits on the throne in your life? 
Have you made Jesus king of every part of your life? And I completely get that this is a massive deal. I'm turning 30 in nine days' time, still clinging on to my 20s. And for me, turning 30, a lot of people are like, oh, how is it, how is it? Well, to be honest, I'm not too worried about it, but I've been reflecting a lot on the big questions when you kind of hit a milestone like that. And to be honest, outside of Jesus, I'm someone who, I naturally, I want to know for certain that I'm going to have good health. I want to know that I can guarantee I'm going to have a, a nice house. I want to have a, a career that gets me a lot of respect, a lot of money, a lot of kind of admiration when I tell people what I do. I want to fall in love. I want to have sex. I want to have kids. And just generally, I want to be comfortable. I just want a comfortable and good life. And so for me, saying I want to make Jesus king of my life, what I'm having to say is I give that all to you. I give that all to you. I can either say... I want my way, my control over my life. Or I can say, your kingdom come and your will be done in my life. And I get that handing over control is kind of a scary and sort of a bit of a threatening thing. Because giving over control, when you can't trust someone, you know, you've got right reason to be concerned. But it's a completely different story when you give control to someone who you can trust. And in the Bible it says that God is the good shepherd. It says that he works all things for good. And for for many of us in this room, we've encountered the goodness of God. And so giving him control, whilst at first might feel a bit painful, we know that he only gives good gifts to his children. And when we realize all that God has done for us, when we see all that Jesus has done for us, to be honest, any sacrifice or any cost we can give for him doesn't really feel like a whole lot. The Christmas story and the Christmas message is wonderful news. But it's a message that leaves us with some questions and some personal challenges. There's no middle ground with this one. When Jesus came to earth, no one just sort of liked him. No one was like, oh, he's such a, an inspirational teacher. No one was like, oh, he's, he's a good guy. I, I, I like him. I kind of like him. You know, he's one, he's one of my favorite speakers. No, when Jesus came to earth, he said, I am God. So I either loved him or hated him. And just like the Christmas story... Jesus is either a big threat to your life that you need to completely reject or he's good and he's God and you believe him, receive his love, encounter his love and it transforms everything in your life. And because, and, and you might kind of say, well, I, I, I don't know. I don't know kind of what that might look like. Like, is this, is this something for me? Well, there's people in this room, whether it's Josh who's baptized tonight, myself, or many here, who can say, you know, I've, I've given control to Jesus. I've put my trust in him. And the proof is in not just his word, but in my own life. See, how do we know that Jesus didn't just turn out, you know, he might have started well as a baby, but then kind of got a bit corrupt. 
Well, because we've read the end of the story. We know that his promises came true. He lived a life of love. He went and helped the poor, met every need in every echelon of society. And then he gave up his life. He died on the cross, conquering sin and death for you and for me. That's how we know that he loves us. And so whether you're someone who doesn't think you're good enough to earn God's love, or you're the person who's come to church every week but never made Jesus king of your life, the truth of Christmas and the truth of the cross is this. Jesus moved heaven and earth. He gave up everything to show just how much he loves you. He did everything imaginable, everything possible just to be with you. Died on the cross, showed his love. Raised from the dead, showed his power. That's the God we know. And his invitation to you today is come and be with me. Make me king of your life.